The Tudor History and Travel Show is a podcast that brings Tudor history to life by exploring Tudor places and artefacts in the flesh. You will be travelling through time with Sarah Morris, the Tudor Travel Guide, uncovering the stories behind some of the most amazing Tudor locations and objects in the UK. Because when you visit a Tudor building, it is only time and not space which separates you from the past. And now over to your host, Sarah Morris. Hello, friends. It's Sarah, the Tudor Travel Guide here, and we are back for another episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. Now, of course, it's December and it's the festive season and Christmas is fast approaching. And with that in mind, I am delighted to say that this podcast is an extra special bumper podcast, which in fact is so long and meaty with so much glorious detail that I have decided to split it into two. And not only that, but because it is the festive season, I wanted to give all followers of the Tudor History and Travel Show a particularly special Christmas gift just from me. And so I'm going to be making both of December's episodes free for everyone to enjoy as an early Christmas gift from the Tudor Travel Guide. And I hope you will enjoy them. I am sure you will, because just a couple of months ago, I had the good fortune to be able to travel down to perhaps one of the most popular destinations on any Tudor time traveller's itinerary. And that, of course, is Hampton Court. I was lucky enough to meet up with Daniel Jackson, who is head of historic buildings for historic royal palaces. And together, we went on a tour of the Grand State Apartments. But also, we got behind the scenes and went well off the usual visitor trail to look into all sorts of nooks and crannies. And Daniel tells us all about the story of the palace and these wonderful spaces and how they were used. And there was so much to enjoy and Daniel was so generous in his time that I didn't want to leave any of it out. And so, yes, I have split this extra long episode into two. Today, you'll be hearing the first part of that episode and the second part will be following in a week's time. The only additional bit of housekeeping to cover before we start today's episode is just to say, of course, Hampton Court Palace is one of the 70 or so locations covered in each of the In the Footsteps books co-authored between myself and, of course, Natalie Gruniger. Um, We have two books of that genre, both In the Footsteps of Anne Boleyn and In the Footsteps of the Six Wives of Henry VIII. The former, of course, dedicated the places associated with Anne Boleyn and the latter covering 10 or so of the most interesting locations associated with all of Henry's Queen consorts. Now, if you want to get a copy, you can pick them up from most online retailers. But if you want something special, either for yourself or a gift for your Tudor-loving friend or loved one, then you can head over to the Tudor Travel Guide shop 
on Shopify and I'll put a link in the description associated with this podcast where you can purchase a copy which has a personal dedication and inscription from me to you or to the person of your choice. So with housekeeping done, it's time to do a little time travelling, my friends. So let's buckle up. It's time to head on over to Hampton Court Palace and meet with our guide, Dan Jackson. So welcome, dear listeners, to the heart of the Royal Tudor Court. Yes, today I am bringing you on location to the most glorious Tudor Palace, Hampton Court Palace. And I am here with our guide today. Hello, Daniel. Daniel Jackson. Hello. Thank you so much for being our guide this morning. Oh, my absolute pleasure. It's uh, it's wonderful to welcome you here. Yeah, well, we've got what we're going to be doing today is going to be exploring the royal apartments and the flow of the apartments and the spaces, what the spaces were used for, some of the stories and characters associated with those spaces. And we'll be getting into some of the, the, the less well known places as well as the public apartments. That's right. right? That's absolutely it. So we're going to be stepping back to sort of the early to mid 1530s and um, thinking about what we would have been seeing if we were here with Henry and the court um, at that period and um, going through the sort of core of the palace into the state apartments past the chapel and then talking a little bit about what we're missing today as well so some of those special Tudor areas that were sadly uh, swept away by um, the terrible vandal Christopher Wren in the uh, 17th century. And we can weep. Yes. (laughs) Those stories. Before we get into that I'd love you though just to tell folks who are listening who are you? What do you do here? Uh, yeah, of course. Uh, so my name is Daniel Jackson. I'm head of historic buildings for Historic Royal Palaces. Um, but for most of the past decade, I have been the Hampton Court Palace curator. So uh, I work on lots of building conservation projects. Every time you're putting a screw in a wall, in theory, I would have been the person you'd come to ask permission to do that. And so um, my role is to understand the palaces, to talk about them, and crucially to make sure that we're preserving their setting and significance in all of the conservation work that we do. Fantastic. What a wonderful wonderful job. (laughs) Just a small amount of envy on that and I'm sure our listeners feel the same. But we are starting I suppose at the beginning. This is, we are in the Great Gatehouse, or we're underneath the arch of the Great Gatehouse. Wolsey's Great House originally, right? Yes, absolutely. So I think we can start off by sort of walking through this gatehouse into Base Court, because that's really where the start of Hampton Court as a palace, that palace story really begins. Um, And it begins with Cardinal Wolsey. So in 1514, Wolsey takes on the lease for the Hampton Court property. We already have a very beautiful moated manor house here. So Giles Daubney, Mm. um, important member of Henry VII's court, has spent almost a decade uh, before he died building a beautiful lavish moated manor house here in the center of the palace around clock court where you can still sort of see the outline of it Um, but Wolsey takes on that lease after Daubney's death and immediately starts knocking it down so all of that investment and wealth that Giles Daubney had poured into Hampton Court uh, isn't enough for Wolsey. Wolsey's plans are much bigger than that, Wolsey's plans are much more ambitious and crucially they're connected even at that early stage to Henry VIII. Henry obviously will enter the story uh, of Hampton Court much mm. more significantly slightly later on, but it's Wolsey who's really starting that transition from house to palace. Um, and we've stepped now into uh, Base Court on this beautiful crisp morning, um, and this is one of the first things he starts doing. So we have some building accounts for, Hen- uh, for Wolsey's time here, only a couple of years, unfortunately. Um, we know the first thing he does is buy some shovels to help clean in the gardens, which is <laughs> wonderful. Um, but the first major project here um, is the construction of this. 
To do this, um, he fills in the moat from that earlier house and then starts building this big range of two-storey buildings around us and the great gatehouse that would have been even greater in its first iteration. We now have this three-storey um, uh, impactful building, but in its original design, it's actually two storeys higher. They have to knock the top two storeys down in the 18th century before they fall down, Such unfortunately. Such a shame, isn't it? Such a shame. And something that is repeated throughout Hampton Court. We've had a sort of a, a decapitation over the centuries since things were built because oh. um, the, the ground just isn't sort of strong enough to support those big, tall buildings, unfortunately. Oh, so what else was decapitated? Anything, uh, any other of the buildings so, that we know of? Yeah, so we've got, uh, there was a big onion dome on the George II building that we can just peek through that gatehouse there. Um, we've lost lots of the uh, couplers off the top. We've had several turrets come down. Um, in archaeological excavations uh, a few years ago, we actually found a turret on the private apartments that we will talk a little bit about later where you could see they built it probably um in time for uh started for anne but completed for jane almost and then <laughs> she unfortunately dies um but they built that turret and then very quickly probably under elizabeth so only sort of 20 or 30 years later um they'd actually had to go back in part demolish the turret and strengthen it and so right from that early phase you have tudor masons going back only a couple of decades later trying to strengthen things um, and that's what happens with the great gatehouse so we have probably seven or eight points from the the 16th century onwards where they're under pinning and they're doing extra works and they're strengthening things and then uh, it still has to be taken down by two stories because they can't quite fix the uh, the engineering and is that because the ground is not it, it, it is the, the kind of the, the the live the ground the soil is, is it not strong enough is it marshy or was no, it, is it just the construction was just too top heavy i think the construction is just a bit too ambitious and yeah you <laughs> often have these sort of big piles and um you have these big sort of monumental upper sections um and uh yeah, they're just sort of slipping down. We're on brick earth, we're on the, um, the river gravels uh, once you go deep enough, um, but it's pretty sturdy. You know, the rest of the palace has survived pretty well, but just these, as soon as you, you top over five storeys, things start to uh, go a bit wobbly. Yeah. So before we go on, perhaps you could just put Hampton Court geographically in context, in particularly in relation to central London and the heart of Tudor England and maybe some of the other royal palaces that Henry came to own. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So Hampton Court is, um, I think of it as the principal uh, sort of countryside palace. So we're about 50. 20 miles from central London. Um, we're on the Thames, so it's very convenient to travel both into London and out into the southwest um, and out to the English Channel as well via, uh, via the Thames. Um, and uh, Henry, obviously being palace mad, has a huge range of palaces um, across the, the country. Um, and Hampton Court becomes one of the principal palaces. So he spends um, almost a thousand days here, we think, based on his itinerary. Um, and Hampton Court becomes one of those places that you're bringing really important visitors, you're celebrating certain festivals, there's quite a lot of sort of repeat visits. Um, and so it is a core palace, really, if you think about it as alongside those other core palaces, Whitehall, Greenwich, those, you know, it's one of the, the top ones, um, mm. sitting just outside London, um, surrounded by hunting lands, tens of thousands of acres of, of hunting land around us. Um, and the Royal Forest connect all the way to Heathrow and then out into the southwest. Right, wow. Um, so I know everybody thinks of Hampton Court as Henry VIII's palace. And I know that those people who know Hampton Court well get a bit kind of defensive. That actually is Wolsey who put this, the original palace together. And you were talking about Wolsey and Wolsey's base court. So maybe we should turn to talk about Wolsey yep. and to talk about this base court. Could you give us an idea of the dimensions for those people who maybe haven't visited? Do you have any idea of what the scale and size of this is? And particularly in comparison 
to any other royal um, sort of double courtyard um, houses. Yeah, so it's one of the larger um, one of the larger buildings. The the, uh, the the thing I like to use to compare the scale is so in Henry's ten years from the end of the 1520s um, up to the, the beginning of the 1540s, we know he buys 26 million bricks to pour into the palace <laughs> and the various buildings he's uh, he's wow. creating. So. It's a big palace. There's probably around 1,600 rooms. It's maximum Tudor size, so it's very large. Um, and uh, as I said, base court is the first bit, but it's actually not Henry here. So this is all Wolsey. So those 26 million bricks don't include any of the stuff that Wolsey builds. So Wolsey starts the kitchens. He builds base court. He's responsible for the start of the chapel, private apartments for himself and the king. Um, so there's a huge range of palace here even before Henry. So you're probably looking at a 50 million brick building at that yeah. point. Um, Base Court itself is uh, about a 40 metre square courtyard um, and it's a really innovative building as well. So this is kind of modern architecture for the Tudor age. Harder to tell now when you're actually in the space, but this crisp line of the elevations, there's not many projecting stairwells. The uh, chimneys have been locked inside the rooms um, instead of projecting out of the elevations. The same with the staircases, the same with all the toilets. They're locked into the palace, and so you get these nice, crisp, straight, flat elevations, which is something that Wolsey is bringing from uh, monastic architecture, um, but not hadn't been seen that much in domestic architecture up until this point. So it's a really sort of new, innovative okay, building. Yeah, I didn't realise that. What, what was the... Um Kind of what was the reason behind that? Why did it become fashionable to push the stairwells inside and push the chimneys inside? I think it's one of those things that aesthetically your building looks um, much cleaner. So as soon as you have lots of projections coming out, you see those sort of, uh, um, even the, the later um, Tudor private apartments, there's lots of sort of bits sticking out, it's sort of angular. It looks like sort of 15 buildings have all been built on top of each other, uh -huh. which is what happened to the private apartments. But here you have this very crisp sort of formal, um, uh, outer surface. So as soon as you come through the gate, you're immersed in this sort of impressive straight line, um, uh, impactful set of elevations. Um, it also means that you have an internal corridor. So there's an internal corridor running around um, most of the sides of this courtyard. So you can get rain-free access into all the apartments around here. And crucially, what we're essentially standing in here is a big hotel. So as designed, as built, you're looking at around 30 uh, one, two, and three-room apartments, um, all being rushed and finished for the visit of Charles V in 1522. That's the first, first really big, major international event that is happening here at Hampton Court. Uh, and these are the rooms that would have hosted um, a lot of those courtiers who are coming to stay at the palace to visit Wolsey, but mainly to visit Henry. And so who, what kind of status of person would have been lodged in these rooms around Base Court? This is high status accommodation. So although there are 30 rooms and some of them are only sort of, you know, uh, 30 apartments, some of them are only one room, um, they are filled with treasures. We have the accounts for Henry um, uh, and for Wolsey uh, ordering masses of tapestries um, from Holland and around uh, Europe to fill these spaces um, with treasure. They're filled with silver, you have all the wine and bread and beer that you could want. We have wonderful accounts of uh, French ambassadors describing the interiors of these rooms. They're very uh, deluxe. Um, this is for your high status court visitor, your ambassador visiting from abroad, your um, English noble who is down but doesn't have somewhere else to stay. Um, I don't think Charles V would have stayed here. I think he goes off to another palace and then is brought here and does the entertaining. Ah. So he's not staying in those rooms, but those high members of his court and of Henry's court who don't have rooms assigned here, they're in this space. So it's, uh, you know, 
it's not written down on paper, but you're looking at sort of, you know, barren or above sort yeah. of level, you know, yeah. really important people. Yeah. We're standing sort of right in the middle, sort of between the two gatehouses here. Would, um, is, what I wanted to ask you, Dan, is, is obviously there was the river entrance and the river entrance was used a lot for accessing the mm -hmm. palace, but clearly this was also a main entrance. I guess this is where if they were going hunting, this is where they would ride out into, into the hunting. Potentially. So, uh, yeah, so um, the river entrance becomes the principal entrance. So the big water gate that's built in the Privy Garden um, in the 1530s um, is one of the principal ways. You're coming often by river and um, the Thames is the safest way to travel and the, probably the quickest way to get into London or out into the southwest. Um, but to start with, this is the principal entrance. That's why you have this big five storey building. It's competing and uh, overtopping the local churches. Oh. It's the sort of the focal point of the local area. Um, and although there's not a formal courtyard out in front of there anymore, there would have actually been another court through that door, but it was a service court, so slightly unusual. So this is the, that point where you enter the real palace. Um, and I think the presence of that surface court is sort of why you end up with the water gate and the park entrance becoming the sort of royal entrances. So you would have people arriving through this entrance, even uh, when the water gate is built. So if you imagine those big court visits, yeah. not everyone is coming by river. Most people are coming through here. All of the stuff, so all of the food, a lot of the baggage, I suspect, is coming in the Seymour Gate, which is slightly to the north of the main gatehouse, um, and then into the service areas, which are just behind us. Um, but this is still a principal entrance, and that's why it's designed like this. So you can imagine people coming in through the Great Gatehouse and then spreading out into these 30 apartments Being shown to us. their various lodgings. Yeah. But I'm really interested that you said that um, outside was another courtyard. So the range of um, buildings that you see now, that would have been part of the original service buildings for the palace? So that's a later building, so that's a barracks built in the 17th century, um, but to the south, so on the big green uh, grassed area that you pass now as you come in on your right through the main gate, um, is uh, was a huge range of service buildings, so um, bakehouses, brew houses, we you know some of the laundry was out there, um, and it's a sort of, uh, not ramshackle, they look like you know quite nice beautiful Tudor buildings, um, but enclosed on all sides with a large uh, wall as well. So Henry's Great Wall, um, it was called, so a six, seven foot wall um, enclosed right. in that courtyard. So it would have been very different, but also because of that sort of service nature and it's not as impactful a building, you come through the sort of the gate, the outer wall yes. gate, and then you see this big building in front of you. You see the Great yeah. Gatehouse and you're being drawn towards it across the moat bridge. Um, uh, and into base court where we are now. Mm. So it's almost like a triple courtyard house this, because I always refer to Hampton Court as a double courtyard house. I can see why, but actually there was a third courtyard as well. Uh, actually a fourth. So it's oh, sort really? of by the end, because Henry, when he builds <laughs> uh, the Queen's private apartments, he locks off another um, square at the end, which becomes is currently Fountain Court, but was known as um, Outer Green Court uh, or Green Court at that point. All the courtyards have about 15 names, so you can pretty much guess whatever name you like for a courtyard, um, and they interchange. Um, so yeah, by the end, you, you pretty much have four courtyards, so it's yes. sort of a quad courtyard house by the end. That's pretty spectacular, um, I have yeah. to say. Now we marathon and some For Christmas now is begun Make we merry more and less For now is the time of Christmas Let no man come into this hall Groom, page, nor yet marshal But that's some sport he bring with all For now is the time of Christmas 
Psalm for Christmas now is begun. Make we merry more and less. For now is the time of Christmas. If that he say he cannot sing some other sport, then let him bring that it may please at this festing. For now is the time of Christmas. Now we mirth all and some for Christmas now is begun. Make we merry more and less. For now is the time of Christmas. If he say he cannot do, then for my love ask him no more. But to the stocks and let him go. For now is the time of Christmas. Um, so we've seen the outside, we've seen the start of the show, we've seen where you might be staying overnight if you're coming to meet Henry. Um, but now let's go up um, the stairs into the Great Hall, into the Tudor State Apartments um, and start that journey towards meeting the King. Do you know what? These are some of my favourite steps. This <laughs> entrance, always I get this frissonous excitement as we go towards these wonderful Tudor doors with the fabulous carving, isn't it, of the royal coats of arms up there, I guess. Yes, those spandrels are, are really magnificent. Spandrels are one of those things that I think it's easy for visitors to miss, but we have some very nice door cases at Hampton Court. Do. And I, I feel as excited as, as the 16th century visitor coming to Hampton Court must have felt for the first time. As they so come inside. In. One of the most brilliant screens passages, I think, Dan, <laughs> that you could possibly hope to enjoy. It's wonderful, isn't it? Yeah. We made the tiny change of, of adding this curtain back in a couple of years ago so that, that you step in and you think, oh, I'm going into the Great Hall, and now you have to sort of sneak through this nice and quiet room yeah. and then turn the corner to get the big reveal that is Hampton Court's Great Hall. And it Hampton is a huge reveal, isn't it? I mean... Um, wow. This is one of the stars of the show. It's one of the, um, the spaces I hope every visitor steps into. I think it's the reason lots of people come to Hampton Court. Um, and one of the most important buildings that, that Henry builds um, and that survives today. Um, so we're stood now in the Great Hall, the last sort of Great Hall of this style built by an English monarch. Um, it's Henry building quite an anachronistic building, really. It's sort of, you know, it's quite an old-fashioned type of building, but it's the type of building that English kings have been building for centuries. And this is Henry, the fairly new Tudor dynasty, um, really stamping his mark as the king of England um, uh, and, and building those buildings that uh, the populace and the aristocrats and uh, his uh, colleagues and peers um, and competitors on the continent would expect uh, an English king to be building. And this particular great hall, because was there a Woolsey Hall on this site before Henry aggrandised and built this final hall? Am I right there? Uh, yes, so there was probably even a pre-Woolsey Hall, so Daubney had a great hall on the site, we uh, are pretty sure, so archaeology in the basement has found um, some of the foundations of that earlier great hall on this site. Um, there's an awful lot of academic debate about how much of this great hall is Wolsey's and crucially whether Wolsey's great hall was on the ground floor or the first floor. Um, I uh, have cautiously avoided that to not um, uh, get into one camp or the other um, during my tenure here because both of the arguments have really strong pros and cons for them. It's an archaeological argument. We can't find it in the building history exactly where that great hall was. But certainly I think you're seeing Wolsey building and using a great hall 
how much of that is left and how much of this is purely Henry, it's really tricky to find out because they're, the way that the palace changes hands in the 1520s and even the way the palace is being used and sort of progressed through the 1520s, um, Henry's stuff and Wolsey's stuff are, are so interconnected, it's really tricky to yeah. unpick them. And then the building materials that are on site when Henry takes over continue to be used in the building. And so often we're dating Hampton Court by looking at the bricks, the mortar, um, the, the style of construction. But you're in such a small time frame in, you know, you're talking just single years or, or a decade between mm. these, these phases. It's really tricky to unpick that Tudor building, unfortunately. Right. I, what I'd love you to do is to try and um, fill in some of the detail about what this place would have looked like in the 16th century. So obviously we've clearly got the structure uh, of, of the actual space itself. We've got the tapestry surrounding the walls. But for example, I think the roof was painted. Can you talk to us about some of the other internal features that we ha maybe have lost? And if we walk into here and really want to reimagine the Tudor Great Hall, what do we also need to, to bear in mind? Absolutely, I'd love to. So firstly, I think it's worth saying that if you want to step back into a room that Henry would recognise today, Hampton Court's Great Hall is one of the best places to do that. Even relative to the rest of Hampton Court, there are, are fewer really distinct changes in here um, than you might imagine. And those changes that have happened are often in uh, the tone or the style of what's on show rather than necessarily sort of big changes to the design scheme. Um, so we're surrounded by the Abraham Tapestries, one of the most expensive sets of tapestries ever made and um, commissioned by Henry for this space, first put on the walls of this space, probably by Henry in 1546 for the visit of a French ambassador. Um, you're absolutely right, the ceiling would have been painted. It's a Technicolor dream world in here. <laughs> and that's one of the things that's really hard to understand. I can absolutely forgive uh, any visitors to Hampton Court for thinking the Tudor period is a bit of a sepia brown period of history, um, but that was not the case. So these tapestries, now a little bit brown, would have been blinging with colour. They're made of actual gold and silver. They would have shined in the light. Um, it's all primary colours. And then that wraps up onto the roof space as well. So it was likely painted uh, a sort of a, a dark midnight blue, lots of gold stars, huge amounts of primary colour, um, lots and lots of gilding up there as well. Um, but sadly, that had sort of tarnished and, and worn over time. Since you've not got a king in charge from the, mm. the 1730s, people aren't repainting it in the way that it wants. Uh, and then the Victorians, unfortunately, um, didn't think that was appropriate for a Tudor <laughs> palace. It couldn't possibly be right. And so stripped out a huge amount of that colour um, from the roof. So now you get this still incredibly impactful sort of sculptural feeling to the ceiling. Um, but it would have been this, uh, this really colourful, bright um, painted image uh, originally that we'll get a little taste of later on when we get to the chapel, right, yes. um, but that's missing here. The other thing that's different in here are the windows. So we think there were stained glass windows here and um, they almost certainly uh, are destroyed in the Civil War when Oliver Cromwell takes over Hampton Court. And this, uh, stained glass now actually dates to the 1840s. Um, so it's a really interesting piece of early palace interpretation, essentially, as um, if you look at the windows, it, uh, they're giving you the, uh, the family history of Henry and all six wives. So uh, I think you can imagine uh, that Henry probably wouldn't have been keen on that scheme. It wouldn't have gone down well um, at the time, would it? No, no. no. But it is painting that picture for those uh, yeah. Victorian visitors, you know, filling in a little bit of that information um, in the same way we do today in uh, you know, our, our labels and things like that. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, and the floor, what would we have expected to be standing on? So um, probably 
this combination of timber and stone, so similar to we have to do today. Okay. And there are some indications that we might have had uh, green and white tiles. There are certainly some purchase orders for that kind of flooring in sections of the state apartments, but we've never found the evidence for that, unfortunately. Um, and then, as you can see, we're right near a fire. This is in the location that we think a fire would have sat. Uh -huh. So the original design of the ceiling had a louvre at the top to release the smoke. Um, and underneath this modern stone platform, um, you have the archaeological evidence for a stone platform oh, there really? to hold a hearth. Okay. So that is um, in its original uh, location. But yes, unfortunately, um, when the palace was opened to the public in the 1830s um, by Queen Victoria, um, a lot of the visitors who are coming are um, uh, the sort of the masses. So they're, they're described um, disparagingly as stained cockneys, um, but they're often bringing hobnail boots. They're wearing their work shoes to come to the palace. And so almost all of our 16th century flooring is destroyed in those early years of uh, tourism here at Hampton oh, Court. So we only have a few fragments of, of Tudor, um, Tudor flooring left, often in the private apartments that were never open to the public. Um, yeah, so that's why we're left with this uh, yeah, still beautiful uh, Victorian floor that we have. Mm. And maybe you could just describe what would go on in this space. What could we have expected to see or enjoy if we'd been here in Absolutely. the 16th century? Absolutely. So that's where I'm going to pull the wall from your eyes slightly unfortunately okay. we have it set out as this sort of grand feasting area at the moment you might imagine with the the way the room is set up that you could picture um henry and uh, you know one choose choose your favorite queen <laughs> um dining at the end but this is actually kind of a big staff dining room so it serves multiple purposes it's a big formal space it's that space where all the important visitors would have processed through it's often used as a theater particularly later into elizabeth and then james's reign um uh, and we think some masking might have happened here. So there are some accounts of Henry taking part in masks at Hampton Court. And this is a good location mm. for that, along with another that we might talk about later. Um, but it's not that formal feasting space. You know, we, we don't have any records of Henry actually feasting in the Great Hall. When Henry's feasting, he's in the next room, which is the Great Watching Chamber. Okay. Um, but the people who did feast in here is all of the staff. So the rest of the court, um, up to, you know, probably 700, 1,000 people, depending on how much of the court is here, um, are being fed in this room twice uh, a day. Um, so that's the, uh, that's the, the wall pulled away. I'll slight, I'll slight fiction with the throne. It is a bit um, sad, really, because I, I was also wondering about, um, sorry, a really practical thing, it's about how do you dance if you've got a great big fireplace in the middle of the floor? Uh, it would get in the way of the kind of the optics of the dancing, I would have thought. It but. would. Um, one of the good things about uh, Tudor passes is pretty much everything is removable. So if you have the, the wealth and the manpower to go with it, um, you don't have to light this fire. So you would have something like this. So this isn't a 16th century mm. um, remain. It's a, it's a replica of what we think a design might have looked like. Mm. Um, but if you don't light the fire, all of this can be taken away. Uh, so, and if you're dancing, you're keeping warm yourselves. And yes. if, you know, there's a mask happening. There's lots of people in the space. Um, there are accounts uh, from uh, the later Tudor period of them hanging um, oil lamps on strings across the ceiling void to light the space. Um, and so that would have been adding a little bit of heat as well. But everything can strip out and, and uh, be brought back in um, and changed and manoeuvred to um, create exactly what you want. So for instance with the theatres you can probably picture quite large theatre sets happening in here and yes. um, there's a big investment in terms of making this space exactly what you want it to be um, which you can do if you're an absolute monarch. Um, yeah. It's slightly harder today. I never thought about the fact you could move it away but of course you could. Yeah and same with all the tables same with everything it's sort of designed in that way to be. This um, is an functional. empty theatre yeah. set isn't yeah. it that you um, can you can dress as you as you need it to. Yeah. So 
So we're coming to the high end of the hall now. We're just up on the dais. We've got a couple of beautiful doorways. I do the spandrels. That's the proper term for yep. them, isn't it? They are glorious, aren't they? Yeah. Can you tell us anything about what we can see, particularly the one over there, which I think leads on to the great watching chamber? Um, it does. Unfortunately, that's the only non-Tudor one as well. Is so that's really? a later. Well, I love it when we, fictional... we find these. Out. Yeah, that's <laughs> a bit of um, the again the Victorians. So the Victorians, Hampton Court was in a pretty poor state in the the 1830s. In fact, there are um, there are articles in the Times saying that really we should just knock it down. It's not worth having. Um, it's just a waste of public finance. But with opening to the public, there's a massive influx of visitors. There's a massive growth in interest. We have over 300,000 visitors um, pretty quickly at Hampton Court, um, and that comes along with a massive interest in keeping the roofs on, rebuilding, reimagining what Hampton Court would look like as, uh, as it originally had been for Henry. Um, and so quite a lot of the sort of iconic Tudor features um, actually date to that Victorian right. reimagining of Henry's world um, rather than the actual survivals from the 16th century, sadly, particularly on the exterior of the building, which you can imagine you know, gets weathered really badly. But this is a, an added door. We don't think there was necessarily a door of, of this shape and size here and um, certainly the stonework and, and the spandrels there are copying others that are found in the palace. This door though, the one on the right, is I think slightly um, older um, and again is aping um, definitely 16th century doors that we've seen like the door when we came in. Um, yeah. Beautiful bits of heraldry um, featuring uh, the king's beasts, um, coats of arms, um, king's crown um, and in really intricate fine carving as well. They're sort of really jumping out from the stonework in quite a, a, a magical, realistic way, um, which I think is what makes them them so uh, impressive. Beautiful, aren't they? Um, you yeah. can imagine the master craftsman would have been called in to do that. Yeah. Can I just ask you about a, a door round the corner, yeah. that, uh, which is just really a bit of my curiosity. Mm -hmm. um, what was it round here? Where was it? Where was it? Is it I think it's around the next corner. I just that... pause here. There's, there's two things I'd like to point out yes. here. We're actually stood next to the oldest thing in the palace that every visitor Visitor could be absolutely forgiven for walking past, um, but the very large horns on the room of the, the on the wall of the, the horn room um, are actually a prehistoric elk that was gifted to Charles II by an Irish duke. So they're several thousands, if not tens of thousands, of years older than everything else we wow. have, um, but are hidden here alongside um, mostly horns from the, the 17th, early 18th century, and a few um, quite modern ones from our, our current horde of deer. I think right. um, herd, not horde. Yes. So, so basically we've come through a doorway uh, to the left of the high end of the hall. Um, I know these are the stairs, aren't they, that go down to the kitchen. So, so can you talk about the purpose of this space that we're in just at the moment? Yeah, so uh, what we stepped into, so the, the servery and next to the buttery where we didn't actually go when we first entered the hall, um, that's where all the food is being brought from the kitchens for eating in the great hall. As I said, mostly that's staff dining. We're now in um, the space, we call it the horn room now. There was actually another horn room originally in the Tudor Palace that sadly no longer exists. Um, but this is effectively another servery, but this is serving um, the great watching chamber, which is where Henry and um, all of the most important members of the court, most important visitors will be eating. So these um, wonderfully surviving uh, Tudor stairs um, take you down into um, the privy kitchen, um, into the, the main kitchen range. Um, and so you can imagine big, uh, you know, big plates of food traveling up this, being laid out on a big table and then being taken out into um, the main room for eating. I... So it's a real hectic sort of bustle yeah. space. Um, uh, that's not somewhere that you perhaps uh, imagine Henry coming, so he probably wouldn't have been in this space a huge amount, but all of Henry's sort of wants and needs are channeling up this staircase. You can just hear it and feel it, it's just wonderful. Yeah. And those steps, those glorious, huge, great big oak steps, just got stories to tell. You yeah. can see the ghosts coming up and down. <laughs> 
So, so I, I thank you for explaining that because I did wonder why there were two sets of stairs. And so we've got now the doorway that goes into the great watching chamber. I can see it's kind of, it looks like there's an older doorway. Yeah. <laughs> What's um, going on there? So that's where you can imagine all that food going through. So this much larger wooden door surround um, is uh, part of the, uh, the Georgianization of the palace, essentially. So it comes in um, in the early uh, 18th century, um, as does the, the wood panelling in the next room. So um, because uh, William and Mary don't have quite enough money to knock down the whole palace, which was the original plan, Christopher Wren's first design keeps the Great Hall only. So all of the rest of the Tudor Palace was, was oh. scheduled to be demolished. Um, because they end up keeping most of the Tudor Palace only demolishing the private apartments, um, they do do some refurbishments out through the state apartments so that these rooms can still be used. They're still impressive rooms. They're still big, grand, entertaining spaces. And so this big door surround has been punched through the smaller, slightly less grand um, <laughs> Tudor door, but luckily we can still see part of it. And you can see uh, a H in the spandrel there. Um, so uh, and that is, is that H and is there a C in the middle of it? Or um, am I just making that up? I think that's uh, floral decoration rather oh, than a C. I think a, there's a, there's a, a Tudor a rose flourish. in the middle of it with a flourish. <laughs> um, yeah, but hard to tell because this was um, all blocked in, so it was revealed um, uh, at a later date, so originally when the Georgians did it, they just plastered over that, bricked it up, and it's so it's wonderful. been revealed so that you can see that sort of depth of history that we get yeah. here in the palace. Layers of layers of history. Yeah. So we're walking now into, I mean, it's beautiful, isn't it? <laughs> the ceiling and the colours, you're going to tell us what's real, what's authentic and what was added, but we're in the great watching chamber. So you started to touch on the, the kind of the functionality of this space, but maybe you can come back and fill in some of the detail of that. Absolutely. So here, this is where actually you can imagine Henry eating. So this is the main feasting room when he's not eating in private further into his apartments. Um, if you're having a big formal dinner, this is almost certainly where it's taking place. So um, similar to how the Great Hall is set up at the moment, you can imagine a big table at the end with then two tables projecting down the sides, a sort of C shape. Um, Henry would have likely been at the end with the oriel window we think so that's the end that feeds into his private apartments we'll talk about in a minute um, and in here again you've got henry would recognize this space but there's a little bit more georgian creeping in here and um, the panel is much more obvious you've got a later um, marble fireplace that isn't 16th century but here the really special thing is the ceiling so this ceiling design is uh, exactly as it would have been um, in the 16th century these roundels are mache work so uh, sort of paste pressed into molds um, and then forming these intricate designs that are then highly painted um, but again here there's a little bit of Victorian trickery going on as most of the ceiling is gold and glorious and wonderful but actually if we wander over here to the corner mm. you uh, and any visitors coming will be able to make out three slightly oh, darker yes. it looks like we've maybe just not cleaned yes, those three and yes. um, they're the surviving 16th century roundels so they are um, uh, as they would be they're in the position and they are what formed the basis for this 19th century reconstruction and um, this was done uh, thankfully not as a sort of a whim but because they're made of this pastework and um, they can be quite fragile and they're nailed to wooden battens uh -huh. and so when the nails start to rust they fall off and destroy themselves ah, on the floor okay. so actually in store we have um, a lot more of these but there's no way to put them back up and so they were taken down to preserve them but those three were judged to be um, solid enough to, to stay up there but now they look like the worst 
ones, but they're actually absolutely the most important ones. So do uh, look out for them uh, on your next visit. So I've got a few questions about this room, things I've sort of been reading about over time, but I've never quite fully worked them out. I think I was speaking to Jonathan Foyle, mm -hmm. who of course used to be uh, curated in here. He was talking about a minstrels gallery in here. Yes. So. Um, Potentially, there are bits and pieces of evidence that point to there being a minstrels gallery above the door that we just came in. Um, you can absolutely imagine it. You can see um, some sort of hints in the, uh, the structure of the wall that point to it. Um, we fairly recently had the floor up in here and were hoping to find more sort of conclusive evidence um, of how that was structured. But unfortunately, there was nothing at all in the floor. So it might have been uh, a sort of um, a beam supported minstrels gallery. Um, but it's one of those things where sort of 80, 90% certain that it was there. Right. But I can't say definitely a minstrels gallery. It would make sense for there to be one. There is one in the Great Hall. Um, and um, certainly we've got quite a lot of physical evidence that there was one here, but I can't tell you anything about it, unfortunately. But it would have been at that end, so at the, the far end, the far away end. from the Oriel window. Absolutely yeah. brilliant. Okay, that's question one yep. that you've sorted out for me. Two, is this window, now I do know this is later, I, yep. I do know this is later, would there have been an Oriel window? Because it was quite common, wasn't it, to light the high end? Yeah. So is that simply a replacement? Do we know what happened to the original, if there was one? Um, yes, so in answer to your question, yes, there would be an Oriel window. Um, this is one of those places we can point to and say, this is Henry's impact on the palace as well. So Wolsey had a, a great watching chamber, or perhaps we could call it a watching chamber here, but it was much thinner. And so Henry actually expands the building here. He adds um, another sort of eight or nine feet on, and he constructs this Oriel window. The window themselves, again, almost certainly stained glass, almost certainly destroyed in the Civil War, if not before. We have no idea what it would have looked like, um, but this is again the Victorian sort of imagining what it might have been. Um, and crucially, it gives you that sense of the light and what that would have felt like in here. So I yeah. think you're, if you squint your eyes a little bit, you can maybe <laughs> imagine uh, yes. Henry being in the space that he would, but again, the scheme is, is very different and yeah. likely, um, Slightly, uh, slightly different to what Henry would have probably chosen. Okay. Um, but the, the, the sense of space is exactly the same. Yeah. Um, and the structure of this, the design of this space is as Henry wanted, as he designed. Thank you. Everyone? Question three. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> I know these doors, because these doors, I love these doors, these would have led in on into the presence chamber and beyond, right? Into yep. Henry. So we've got a set of doors at the high end. Uh, they are always closed because there's a brick wall behind that. Isn't well, it? let's open them. Oh, let's. Um, <laughs> so let's. we can go behind the rope. Oh, yeah. We love a bit of behind the rope. Oh, I see. So no longer a brick wall. <laughs> um, I love it. This is... So we've got, uh, um, what would you call that? Uh, it's, it's a corrugated kind of door. You're pressing an electric switch and that's lifting the door up. It's not exactly Tudor. Uh, no, so <laughs> this is the reason that unfortunately we don't open this door very often. So. I've Wonderful. just put up the fire shutter um, and we're now into a distinctly un-Tudor scaffold store. So all of our conservation work, you can see these giant rooms, these huge tapestries, we need scaffolding to work on those. Uh, and so all of that is stored through this wonderful door that would have led into the private apartments of Henry VIII. Um, unfortunately, they were just about to fall down in the 1730s and so were demolished um, to make way for the, the George II range that is there So is the this moment. completely rebuilt? It's not as if even they've kind of patched it up? They've, 
you know, what's the scale of the rebuilding that we're so talking about here? it's near complete. The eastern wall survives, so the main eastern sort of exterior and spine wall of those private apartments survives, and so we have a couple of interesting Tudor features in that that we can see later. Um, and the projecting turret in Clock Court, which was a, a stair turret and probably a pages chamber, um, sort of uh, functioning to, to support the state apartments, is also still uh, 1536. Um, but everything else in this range is demolished. We have a, a, the um, the Bain Tower um, is also demolished, but they leave a bit more of the exterior and some of the interior as well. So we have a little tiny tower of Henry's private apartments, um, but that's it. Almost everything else was destroyed. I see. And that explains why, literally, the floor, you know, you can't make sense of, oh, this might have been the space. It's totally changed, it's, isn't it? It's nearly, nearly yeah. completely changed. Um, the floor levels are <laughs> almost the same here, but have changed in the Bain Tower. Um, but uh, yeah, everything else, there are more rooms in here now than there would have been. So there were, there were fewer, grander rooms. Um, and so it's really difficult to interpret. We have a reasonable sense of what would have been. So that run of the spaces, you have uh, privy chamber, dining chamber, bed chamber. Um, but that's as far as you can go, unfortunately. Yeah, you lose the flow. But thank you for mentioning that because there was always a sequence of rooms and I think that's quite useful for people who are visiting Tudor, even Tudor manor houses. It's on a smaller scale, right? But it's still the same. And maybe you could just sort of talk about the sequence a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So there is a sequence of rooms and um, it's complicated here by the fact that Henry uh, is addicted to building. So the, the big chunk of time, um, the first, the, pretty much all of the 1530s, you can imagine Henry visiting for a period of time, deciding he wants something new, ordering his, his masons to go and build it, and then going away, and then coming back, there's a flurry of activity. Hampton Court was pretty much a building site for, for a decade. Um, and Henry is um, massively expanding his private apartments and the private apartments for the Queen and building apartments for Edward throughout that period. So we start off with this range. Um, this would have been built by Wolsey. You have rooms for the princesses on the ground floor, Henry on the first floor, and then a double height series of rooms for uh, Catherine of Aragon on the top floor. And we have a lovely illustration um, done by Thomas Ford, maybe? Um, a lovely illustration done just before they knock the building down that shows the elevations of that building. So a wonderful little glimpse back into what the exterior of the building looked like. Yes. Um, but here you have, um, as originally designed, you have sort of three core rooms and then a, a side room coming off them that have served as um, privy chamber, dining chamber, so private dining chamber, and then bed chamber for Henry. And um, one of the first things he does is then add the Bain Tower onto the end of that. Um, and this is quite a French um, style of building, it's sort of like a donjon tower. And in there you have um, another bedroom, a private study, a private chapel, a library, a jewel house. And so that sort of steps away for a really short period of time, about two years Henry is using that, where he's suddenly got this sort of, um, almost like a modern house, you know, it's, it's top to bottom, three floors um, of different functions. Uh, a bathroom with hot running water, um, which I think people are, are often surprised about hearing um, that that's included in there. Um, but then uh, as soon as he's built that, he's then ordering more apartments for himself. So he built his secret bedchamber looking out at the Privy Garden. Um, and then as the Queen's apartments are built, you're building another secret, secret bedchamber down in the southeast east corner right next to the Queen's apartment. So this constant sort of um, mm. flow of Henry away from these state apartments, perhaps mm. away from those pressures of court, that public life, deeper and deeper into these private apartments. Um, I think 
potentially as that public court life is invading these spaces. So yeah. although we talk about them as private apartments, the privy chamber, the dining chamber, you're still looking at members of the court getting in there. You're still looking at important people traveling through this door um, and uh, meeting the king. Um, in fact, sort of slightly counterintuitively, you have to be really important to get in there, but actually the less important you are, the more chance you are of coming in here and meeting the king in one of those spaces. Actually, if you're really, really important, if you're Charles V, Henry is probably coming out and meeting you, if not in the Great Hall, maybe even at the front of the palace, or maybe even riding right. out to meet you when you're yeah. a little distance away from the palace. Yeah. And so there's this, this sort of um, seesaw act of mm. where you are meeting the king um, speaks to your importance and your relative importance to Henry as well. The bow's head in hand bear I, bedecked with bay and rosemary. And, and I pray you, my masters, be merry, quodestis in convivio. Stand is the greatest dish in all the land. When thus bedecked with a gay garland, let us serve a cantico. I do have one more question, which I will ask you in here. Yep. I don't know whether it's more relevant, more or less relevant, but obviously we have the access from this public chamber into the King's side. And you mentioned that the Queen's apartments are directly above us. What I've always wondered is where are the stairs to get you from these public apartments into the Queen's apartments? Because one assumes that if, you know, this is the main public entrance, you may yep. be wanting to go and see the King, or you may be wanting to go and see the Queen. And I've always been like, if you wanted to go and see the Queen from here, where would you go? So you would step into, there you have a couple of options. Um, you could step into that first room of the King's private apartments, and then to the left would have been access to a great stair <sighs> that goes up to essentially the, the main door of the Queen's apartments is on the second floor. Um, and we can actually go and visit that Let's... later because that does survive. Oh, yes. The staircase doesn't, but her front door does survive. Um, that's really uh, an exciting thing to see behind the scenes. Um, but you could also um, access that by being outside. So that main door is on the, uh, the eastern side of that range. So um, 
difficult to access from uh, Clock Court, but if you go through into the next courtyard, you can then get up into the I Queen's see. apartment. Oh. Um, or just sort of sneak into Henry's apartments for a second and then and then nip up the stairs. I see. Thank um, you so yeah. much, because that has really bugged me <laughs> for years. I've been like, where are the stairs? I knew the doorway into the Queen's apartments existed. I was yeah. like, where's the stairs gone? Um, yeah. So they just got demolished, obviously, uh, somewhere yeah, so along the way. They've been demolished over time. You can also, speaking of Queen's and stairs, um, you can perhaps imagine uh, Catherine Howard's household been coming down those stairs I've just described into the great watching chamber because that's where her household was dismissed. Uh, dismissed. Um, so that's the space where that took uh, that oh took place. Goodness. We have the records of that. Um, and again, speaking of Catherine Howard, we've just stepped into um, what is now called the haunted gallery, um, supposedly haunted by Catherine Howard's ghost. Um, so uh, again, a tale um, potentially uh, apocryphal, but I think it is described um, in surviving records of her um, running from her private apartments, escaping her guards and banging on the doors of the chapel that were just about to be stood outside and um, trying to plead with Henry um, for her life and so um, so this yeah. is where she would have come down those stairs and, and through that the yeah. great watching chamber so and down this potentially down this haunted gallery um, if that tale is true if that tale is true <laughs> um, yeah as with so many Tudor tales um, they, they like a bit of drama so we're walking through the, the haunted gallery now and again a space that is really uh, evoking what it would have looked like also this is where we filled this space with um, art from the Royal Collection Trust um, and you're trying to put the people back into those spaces and that's something that's quite hard to do today you should imagine these spaces absolutely filled with people um, so this gallery um, works essentially as a processional route so you're coming from the king's private apartments down to the chapel on high days and holidays um, uh, for important events so you might imagine us all stood to the sides of this corridor waiting waiting for henry to process past you to go into the holiday closet um, that chance to see the king be seen with the king talk with other courtiers, conspire, all of that kind of thing is happening um, in these corridors as part of that processional route um, uh, for those, those important court events. If people could see me, I have this enormous grin on my face because I've got a very active imagination, Dan, <laughs> and it's not hard for me to actually see Henry walking past. It's, it's almost kind of a physical, visceral thing, but yeah. it's just incredible to think that... I just find it amazing, and I know people who love history. You know, it's a, it's that chance to touch the past by being in the spaces that people were in. And when you're standing somewhere like this, it's not a huge space, so you know that literally, like within a foot of where I was standing, Henry would have walked. Absolutely, you know, multiple times, multi many, 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 many times. Many times. Yeah. And, and that just gives me the shivers. It's just um, so lovely. Yeah, so yeah, so we're turning the corner. I know we're heading towards the Chapel Royal. So this, what's this? Is this still part of the Haunted Gallery, or has it got its yeah, own so name? Yeah, so we talk about both of these spaces mm. as the haunted gallery right. um, so they're, they're doing that same function it's a, it's yeah. a gallery space and um, also giving access to um, the council chamber so yes. uh, another room that um, incredibly important to the life of Henry let's, we can, yeah, we can step inside and um, as Henry's apartments expand as the palace itself expands and um, we do see the council chamber move around essentially it's one of those spaces where you have this designated room but actually um, once Henry builds more private apartments for himself. One of those central rooms in the original set of three private apartments um, is often used as a council chamber after that. So dragging that sort of political uh, meeting space a bit closer to Henry, I think, ah, is what you're seeing there, okay. um, a bit deeper into the palace. Um, but certainly for the, the start of the reign, um, this is where, uh, or the start of Henry's time here, this is where a lot of those big 
political decisions are happening. And um, this is, you know, those huge, uh, important uh, divorce from Rome, uh, beheadings, um, all of that kind of stuff is Plans for war in France. Plans for war in France. Um, and also really uh, sort of, you know, mundane detail stuff like uh, interviewing a man who's been accused of stealing horses and uh, talking about um, how to get people to stop eating meat on Lent and, and cracking down on that kind of behaviour. Um, and there, it's not just big picture stuff that's happening in here. It's, it's quite minute uh-huh. things as well. Um, and that's all being driven by, by Henry and the, the Privy Council. Um, so a really interesting sort of um, uh, challenge to what you might imagine Henry is spending a huge amount of time talking about and his councillors. But they're also, you know, talking about sort of fairly petty court politics and, and sort of laws and, uh, and things like that, just managing the realm yeah. in that way that um, had to be done in the 16th century because nobody else is there to do it. And if you read Letters and Papers of Henry VIII, you hmm. see records of Privy Council meetings happening on a very regular basis, almost daily, yeah, almost yeah. daily, right? Um, yeah, absolutely. So yeah, pretty much daily, um, unless there's something else big that's, that's happening. Um, yeah, and they're happening in rooms like this. So again, this is a recreated space. On This is the council chamber, but um, up until the early 2000s, it was actually an art conservation studio. Um, and so that was all stripped up. We've reconstructed it. The floor is based on um, descriptions of what the floor uh, in the council chamber might have looked like. And there's some illustrations of council chamber meetings that show this floor. Same with the wall hangings, um, the design. Um, so it's a, another space where you... You're sort of you're seeing everything that Henry would have seen, but I think our budgets were probably slightly smaller than Henry's. Um, <laughs> yes. So you're losing a little bit of that bit. Yeah, it's wonderful. That's such a evocative space. Um, so we're now just going to, I think, peek through the door of the chapel. Mm. Um, so this is into the Queen's holiday closet um, and is set up as it might have been um, for uh, a wedding. So we know Henry marries Catherine Parr here, um, one of those big events that take place out in the court. Um, it almost certainly didn't happen in this space. So this is the Queen's holiday closet, the Queen's privy closet, but it's recorded as being the Queen's privy closet in her private apartments that no longer exist. Ah, so we have I dressed see. the space as it would have been dressed for um, the wedding to give you the sense of um, the scale and the style that, that would have happened. Um, and certainly that uh, event would have included some celebration in the chapel, but the actual room where Henry and Catherine got married was again a victim of Christopher Wren in the 17th century. So because that's a, a, a titled a holy day closet, was it associated with the chapel in the Queen's privy apartments or so, was it just a purely like a closet? Yeah, so it's the Queen's privy closet. So this is the holy day closet, yeah. part of the chapel. Um, it's mentioned as the Queen's privy closet, ah, which okay. is in... Um, gotcha. So it's a, you know... Um, I mean, not a small room, not like a cupboard, it's quite a big room, um, but one of those spaces where um, you might imagine her dress being laid out for her. It's sort of one of those yes. slightly multifunction rooms, as so many rooms are in the Tudor Palace. Yes. Um, um, but it's, uh, it's a very private space. It's locked right into the heart of the private apartments. Yeah. Um, so a really suitable place for that, A very um, private ceremony. Yeah, private By then, ceremony. Six Wife, he doesn't need to do the whole public he, thing, He's done the it? big showy thing, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He's had, that, he's had the, uh, yeah. he's spent all that money on those. He's, um, he's just into a private ceremony and a very different type of, of marriage and a different type of um, relationship that you're seeing yeah. there. There we go. Thank you Actually. so much. So we've now just stepped into the Queen's Stair and we have jumped forward 200 years in time. So we have just 
taken a big step out of the Tudor world. It's a real shock to the system. I mean, it's beautiful, but for Tudor lovers, it's like, oh my goodness, yep. just, I, let me get back to the Tudor age. But yeah, so what would have been here? Um, so uh, what would have been here um, is uh, essentially a range, um, uh, another communication gallery. So this is another point where you can do what you can do today. So you have a choice whether to go straight on to get to the King's Apartments um, or you go left into the Queen's Apartments. Um, so on a s almost the same footprint, a slightly smaller scale, um, the communication gallery was a, a bit thinner, we think, and slightly further to the west. Um, but you'd be doing the same thing, just in a very different space and without this huge stair. Um, right. So there was yeah. a, a, a fairly large stair, but just slightly over there. And so at this point, you, there was probably a turret stair where you could go up and down. Um, but this is another point where you're either going into the later Queen's private apartments or heading to the later Tudor King's private apartments. Ah, I see. Right. So yes, another communication base. So where do we need to go for here to continue our story? With so I think now let's go and have a look at that door to the Queen's apartments that I mentioned. Let's, let's. I must admit, I'm constantly getting totally disorientated when I'm in trying to work out the orientation and the lie of the land between how the apartments were arranged and how they're connected to one another. Mm. It is a little bit confusing, but I guess you've got it sussed after 10 years of being here now. I have. The secret is in learning the staircases. You almost always end up at a staircase, so as long as you know where they all are, right. um, that's how you do. But if, as you look ahead of you now as we come through this door, you'll see where we started off. So that is the great gatehouse. We've come quite a sort of wiggly, circuitous route, but in, almost in a straight line. Um, and so we're now stood um, in the range of buildings that would have been um, uh, the princess's apartments. They're apartments for Mary built by Wolsey. Um, so we're in the footprint of that building. Um, and we're going to go upstairs two flights to see the surviving fragments of that Tudor private apartment. So this staircase that's here, obviously it looks later. Would there have been a staircase here or is that... They yeah. would have it. So, so this is where that Tudor Queen stair would have been. Um, quite a, a grand staircase, we think. It's one of the main sort of um, formal staircases in terms of access to those early private apartments, um, but completely demolished, almost no trace of it. And this is much later. This is a um, late 17th, early 18th century stair. Gotcha. Um, but this is probably one of the best Tudor things that we can't show to people. Um, so you can see this is a really rickety staircase. Yes. It's not going anywhere apart from these Tudor features. So um, it's really nice to be able to, to talk to you and sort of paint this picture of, uh, of, of what these features are. It's um, such a shame more people can't see this because it's, it's, it's so wonderful. So much interest in the women associated with Henry. Absolutely. <laughs> and yeah. so I think this is such a special this is incredible, isn't it? So can you orientate us? We're looking, first of all, let's describe what we're looking at for those people listening. Um, yeah, so we've just come to the top of the staircase. We're outside uh, apartment 32B, um, and we're looking at a giant, uh, over full height um, stone door case. Um, so again, incredibly beautiful um, stone carved spandrels with royal beasts, um, space um, on shield, left blank, almost certainly suggesting that it was painted. Um, a lot of the stonework you see, you might imagine it being painted originally. Mm. Same with the ceilings. Um, and this would have been the front door, the main entrance to that range of private apartments built for Catherine of Aragon, used um, by Anne, used by Jane. Yeah. Um, an incredibly important site of, of Tudor history. So can you just, I'm just turning my back to the door now yeah. and looking in the other direction. Mm -hmm. 
would would you again you see i'm constantly getting confused about the orientation would the, where would the queen's presence chamber be um, is it in there? Behind you, yeah. It is actually so in there. So we're, we're stood in the staircase. So the staircase is gone. I got it. We're on a new staircase, but it's in almost the right location. You can see um, painted into the wall, oh, yes. the stonework of uh, a, a window that's looking out into sort of the courtyard next to the stair. So the stair wall, the Tudor stair wall, would have been sort of here. Uh -huh. um, so it's uh, much squarer, um, it's slightly smaller than the current stair we've just come up. Yes. And so you come to the top of the stair, um, and I think I'm right in saying that stair is just serving this apartment at this level. Right. So there are more rooms downstairs going into the king's apartments. Yes. Um, but here you're just coming to this big formal entrance to... So behind you there, that was a window looking outside. That's courtyard. It was an, it was an outside, yeah. I see. Um, so that's the continuation of, of part of that courtyard there Got in the original, um, the original yes. design. Again, for those people listening, I'll be including some photographs so that you can make sense of, of what we're talking about. Because it is a bit tricky, even if you're here in person, it's yeah. a little bit tricky. But I'm ready now. I'm ready now to go have an audience with Anne Boleyn. So she's behind <laughs> those doors, right? She is. We have to take another door to get there, though, because there's one more really important Tudor feature okay. to show you. Let's go. And that is where we leave the first part of our podcast series for the month of December. I hope you enjoyed the journey in time and it was as thrilling for you as it was for me to explore some of the well-known and certainly the lesser well-known parts of the palace. Now, I hope you will be able to join me again next week when we publish the second part of this episode and we will be able to continue our adventure in time together. In order to add even more detailed information, particularly about the early origins of the palace, I'm including a link in the description associated with this podcast to a blog I wrote a little while ago, which really does explore the earliest origins of the palace and how it came to become owned first by Cardinal Wolsey and then, of course, by Henry VIII. And at the end of that blog, I will include a gallery of images taken during this particular recording of this episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show so you can see some of the delights that Dan and I have been discussing in this episode. So that's all for me for this week. I will see you again soon very, very soon, as we come back with our concluding part of our Hampton Court Palace extravaganza. for tuning in to today's episode of the Tudor History and Travel Show. If you've loved the show, please take a moment to subscribe, like and rate this podcast so that we can spread the Tudor love. Until next time, my friends, all that remains for me to say is happy time travelling. Thank you.